In order to defend yourself properly and take action when someone is attacking you, you have to move. Movement is an essential aspect and requirement when it comes to defending yourself well in that self-defense situation. And movement is one of the things that I think most of us as human beings do not do well anymore. Maybe our ancestors were very good at it, but we aren't required to move nearly as much as those before us were required to do. We have so many conveniences and so many ways to just order things online and have things come to our doorstep and sit on our butts on the couch or on in an office chair that we don't really get a lot of opportunity to practice movement unless we force ourselves to do some sort of sport, etc. So to cover the concept of movement and self-defense and what it means to personally develop yourself and your self-defense capabilities through movement, I brought on my friend Rafe Kelly from Evolve Move Play to speak on the subject as a whole. Rafe is someone who I've known from back in the day when we did parkour and free running together in the same social circles. And Rafe has actually taken the concept of movement and what he has learned in his journey to new heights by actually opening up Parkour Visions, which was a parkour gym in Seattle. And then later on, he started the company Evolve Move Play, which does a series of retreats and classes that help people to personally develop themselves better, both internally and externally through movement with a blend of dance, primal tribal movement practices, and parkour and martial arts. And because of the fact that he has taken his movement knowledge to a scientific and philosophical level, he actually was recently brought on by Jordan Peterson onto Jordan Peterson's podcast to talk about rough and tumble play and how it actually is a requirement for developing good, solid, socially smart children. Let's get into the episode where we talk with Rafe and where Rafe and I actually go over movement, how it is beneficial for you, and how sometimes it doesn't require a kick or a punch to still be in the mentality of teaching yourself and your kids how to be safe on the street. My friend, Rafe Kelly from Evolve Move Play. Welcome to the Get Real Self-Defense Podcast. Here you get your daily dose of personal protection discussion to help you be more confident and prepared to protect yourself and your loved ones. And now, let's get real with self-defense. Hello and welcome to the Get Real Self-Defense Podcast. I'm Adam Jolly, helping you find tips and tricks to help you become a more confident, competent, and capable protector for yourself and your family. And today, I'm really excited. Uh, it's a long time coming in some ways. Uh, I'm bringing on... Rafe Kelly from um, Evolve Move Play, and he is someone that I've known actually um, from years back when we were both doing parkour back in the Northwest. And uh, even then, he was someone who uh, always came with conversations from a point of intelligence and and reflection. Uh, and he's developed going from just doing movement and parkour to actually creating a movement around movement. And so. We'll get more into that in a second, but with that, um, essentially, I'll give you a quick rundown for you guys. Rafe is someone who, at, at a young age, struggled with ADHD and dyslexia and moved on to have uh, eventually a mentor in his life, and he can expand on that in a second, where uh, basically through a lot of rough and tumble play, a lot of movement, he was able to overcome a lot of these issues and move on to getting a college degree. And like I said, he's one of the most intelligent people I've ever uh, met and listened to. And so with that, Rafe, how you doing, brother? I'm good. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to see you, Adam. I think it's been over a decade, but yes, I remember when you were training with us regularly. That was great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I actually didn't finish my degree. Um, oh, I thought you did. You no, no. I, I, finished, I, uh, 
I stopped with about three classes left because I, at that point, was really focused on teaching gymnastics, and that was my gotcha. passion at the time. Um, but yeah, I was able to go from you know basically being held back. Uh, they wanted to hold me back after third grade so that I you know should know no sign of having really been educated at all, despite uh, despite four years of school at that point. Um, and then when I came back into the school system, uh, what would have been my sophomore year of high school? I skipped my sophomore year and, you know, ended up being a junior that year. Uh, I went to community college and right away was able to get a 4.0 and score very highly on the SAT. So um, ADHD continues to be something that, you know, is a feature of my life. But, uh, but yeah, rough and tumble play was really healing for me in that way. And then later parkour actually really helped me. Um, you know, stop losing my phone, stop losing my keys all the time. I still lose them probably more than the average person does, but it's not a, a daily occurrence anymore. Sure. So one of the things that, uh, that, you know, you did a lot of movement as I was like looking you up and trying to uh, keep up to date on, on where you've been at in life, uh, prior to this podcast, one of the, one of the things is like, you covered all sorts of things in martial arts and self-defense, like Capoeira, you did Sistema, you did BJJ, you did Kung Fu. I mean, Aikido, just to name a few of them. And even before that, you were, you know, you were playing in the woods as a child. You had a mentor who was very, very okay with the idea of not restricting you and confining you to learning in a, a, the typical environment, which is sit down in a classroom or at a table and do math and do science and, and just focus up. And so with, with movement, movement obviously um, is very important to you and was very important to you as a kid. Uh, so with all the movement that you've done from gymnastics to parkour to, to martial arts, what have you discovered in that entire lifetime of movement that, you know, is kind of like a universal importance for people to have that maybe they don't have in society? Just movement itself, right? So fundamentally, every cell in your body actually relies on movement to maintain its health and uh, to just continue to actually thrive. So you're, um, uh, my friends from functional range conditioning, they, they have this saying, which I like, which is a force is the language of cells. So when you exert a force on a cell, that's what informs the cell how it should shape itself. And it kicks off metabolic processes in the cell when it's moved. In the same way that uh, food, right? So chemical nutrition comes from food and feeds your body the building blocks of proteins. But uh, it's actually movement that moves a lot of things in and out of cells. It's a lot of, uh, it's movement that tells the cell how to build itself that informs gene expression. Your your body, you know, you you have a heart which is moving and the heart of course pumps blood. But even venous return is not perfect without some kind of movement. Then you have the lymphatic system, which is completely dependent on movement. You have to walk basically to push lymph up through your system. Lymph is the primary um, kind of sewage system of the body. It's how we get rid of metabolic waste problems out of our cell. So most people in our culture simply don't move enough. And that is a primary cause of the multitude of lifestyle diseases that we face in our culture. Um, but movement isn't just uh, how, you know, isn't just fundamental to health. It's actually fundamental to our experience of meaning in the world and what we actually are as human beings. 
we come from a very unique sort of cultural background in the West where we, we have kind of divorced ourselves from our own embodiment through the influence of the beginning of the scientific revolution, particularly the work of Descartes, who is a brilliant a philosopher in many ways, but you know, he famously said, I think therefore I am. And in his project of radical doubt, the only thing that he could not doubt was his own mind. Um, and so then the body he conceived of as mechanical in the same way that he conceived of the of the rest of the world. The mind was separate from that. Hmm. Um, but that's not how we experience life. And it's not what evolution tells us. Um, it's not what many religions tell us, right? We are actually uh, contingent on our embodiment. And when we, um, when we divorce ourselves from our embodiment, we actually lose touch with some of the things that are most fundamental to experiencing life is meaningful. Literally, uh, you know, ecological psychology tells us that the meaning of an object is not, it's not objective, right? So if I pick this up and I tell you this is a cup, right? This cup is ceramic, right? But I could have a metal cup. I could have a plastic cup. This cup is white and has things on it. I could have any number of colors. This cup is, you know, like a, a cylinder that's even at the top and the bottom, but it could be different shapes. It could be rounded. It could be uh, kind of cut in at the top. It's actually very hard to design a computer program that can perfectly differentiate cups from non-cups. Mm -hmm. What makes a cup a category isn't objective, right? There's an infinite set of facts that are different between two cups and an infinite set of facts that are the same between a cup and a can, for instance, right? So, you know, fundamentally, they're all made up of protons and neutrons and electrons and, um, you know, but they're different in some way. And the, 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 the fundamental thing about a cup is actually that it has a relationship, a real relationship to me as a, so as I was saying, the cup has this real relationship to you, which is that you, we can grasp it. It's, it's the correct size and shape that it's easy for a hand to hold. And um, it's, it's relevant to us because we have a desire to, we have a necessity for consuming liquids. We can contain liquids in these and easily then access them. Now, it's not subjective. And this is the mistake that like romanticism makes because you can't actually project the function of a cup onto anything. If you try to make this cup out of cheesecloth, it wouldn't work very well, right? Sure. You'd be getting water all over your hands. So it's, it's real, but it's not objective. That, so when we perceive a cup, we perceive the meaning of the cup because of its relevance to our own motivational schema and our action capabilities. So when you move and take on any movement practice, you're actually layering new potential meanings into the world. So when I can do a jump between two tree branches, that's now a meaning of those two tree branches that I've unlocked. Mm -hmm. When I know that I can harvest certain fruits or honey or eggs from a tree, that's or, uh, or timber or fiber from the tree, that that's, that's meanings that I have available to me. So when we live lives where we spend most of our time in front of a screen, we are actually um, becoming in some sense blinded to the most fundamental meanings that have been important to us throughout our evolution. Everything about us is in, sen in some sense actually contingent on our capacity to move. Our intelligence arises because we are actually the most complicated, the most complex movers 
in the animal kingdom. We have a wider variety of motor capabilities and more flexibility in developing new motor capabilities than any other animal. And it's because of that that we have these huge brains. So, so when we talk about movement, what we're talking about is actually reclaiming our own understanding of the most fundamental aspects of our nature and the very things that can give deep meaning to life. I think that's it's actually a, a beautiful um, concept as a whole because I'll tell you what, for me personally, I've found that uh, my, you know, my my family, my friends, I found that when people were moving, they like whether that be playing sports or jogging, going for a walk, everyone has these different uh, things that they do that makes them happier. Like people say like, hey, it helps to lift weights when you're feeling depressed. That was something that universally seemed to help a lot of guys when I was in the military. Um, you know, just getting that that physical stressor, uh, you know, putting yourself under a little bit amount of stress and lifting weights. But with with movement, when it comes to creating meaning, I, the first time that I discovered a, a sliver of that was actually when I started parkour. And when I started doing parkour, I didn't look at, at a bench as a bench anymore or a wall as a wall anymore. It became something different. And uh, I would assume um, it's the same thing for like skateboarders or um, BMX bikers where they, they're, they're moving something and they see an obstacle or they see something that most people would go around or, um, you know, take the stairs or something like that. And they're looking at that as an opportunity to see what they can do with that environment. And when it comes to, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of goes in the same realm for, for situational awareness in self-defense where you are looking at somebody and, you know, other people and things in your environment. And you're not looking at it as just, hey, there's people in the environment and I'm going to the store. You're looking at it as, hey, you know, what are people doing? What is their behavior? What are their hands doing? And it creates a different level of meaning in that realm. And it all, you know, circulates around the concept of what you're talking about, which is, you know, jumping between two tree branches, you know, looks like two tree branches at first until you do that. And all of a sudden it's more than that now. And you created a relationship uh, with yourself uh, through that. I think that's quite fascinating. So when, when it comes to, to movement, I mean, you've done a lot of martial arts and, and, you know, you have children. Um, and uh, I was actually watching um, the other day, uh, your video that you had on YouTube with um, your kids uh, doing the introduction. It was like 10 things to do during COVID or, or whatever mm -hmm. uh, I think was the title right. uh, with your kids. And I watched your youngest who, was she, was she two, two and a half, three? She seemed uh, really young. She would have been uh, maybe under two at that stage, I think, because she's, she's five and a half now. And that would have been three years ago. So yeah, two and a half. Goodness gracious. So when, when I, when I watched that and I saw her climb the bunk bed, I honestly mm -hmm. was blown away. And this yeah. is coming from someone who did, you know, parkour and stuff and knows that there's possibilities. And so um, when it comes to yourself and your children, what are you, what, what things are you doing with your family to create, you know, to embody like the concept of movement to create that resiliency and that confidence? Because a lot of people on the street aren't confident and bad guys can smell that out very, very quickly. And so, you know, through movement, it seems like your kids are actually very, very, you know, confident with themselves as people. And it yep. seems like movement does a lot with that. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like your relationship with your kids and movement? Mm-hmm. Well, so I think I want to start with like what we don't do, right? Sure. Via negativa. So we, um, none of my kids have phones, right? They don't have access to tablet devices. 
we only allow you know about four hours of television a week and so we don't and no video games so we don't have anything that's we don't have as many things that are actually competing for their attention that mm. pull them away from engaging with movement second thing we don't do is we don't punish our kids for moving generally or tell them to be scared of movement right as much as possible we try to support them when they want to take on a movement task so there are certain things that i do like i regularly warn my kids when they're swinging on tree branches to make sure that they swing relatively close to the trunk right? they're not always aware of how much of you know they're they're getting too far out on that lever on but they get to swing on tree branches and they get to climb trees they get to climb you know, uh, when we lived in Seattle, I, I allowed them to climb on a roof, which was flat. They're not allowed to climb on the roof here because it's, you know, it's steep. But, you know, as much as possible, I'm just giving them a chance to do it. When they want to wrestle, then they're allowed to wrestle. So I've been working with a lot of, a lot of schools have reached out to me recently and they've been like, how can we get started? And I said, well, like, go back and look at all the things that you've banned that the kids are doing and say, hey, um, you know, what of this can we let go of banning, right? Stop banning tag, stop banning, you know, um, games that involve tackling and chasing. And, you know, like how much of this can we let go of? How much of this is actually required by insurance? And so, so that's a big part of it. Now, uh, I think about sort of, I guess you, maybe we could categorize like the things that impact your kid's movement environment. Three things pop into my head. One is, um, the kind of removing removing barriers to their movement the second is uh creating pull factors what makes the kids want to move inherently so we just bought an air track and put it out in our backyard for the kids to jump over and oh, i'll nice. go outside and put the air and like put a hurdle for them to jump over at the end of the air track and a big pit pillow for them to jump into and i'll kind of change the the different arrangements around the air track so it's a little bit different every day and it attracts the kids attention and then they'll go out and play we happen to have a a um, japanese maple tree in our front yard that is really great for the kids to play on and like just it's amazing just having that completely changes how much time they spend climbing um so that's a pull factor so how many pull factors can you create for your kids and then there's a push factor which is this is actually something that I'm telling them is a necessary component of their education, right? So uh, my oldest daughter, we kind of pushed her too hard with some of the movement practices at a certain point and she burned out. She had too many things going on. She wanted to drop some of them. We weren't ready to let her drop some of them. And, she, and then when she did drop, she just wanted to be out of it for a long time. So eventually it was like time to kind of get her back to it. And I, and I told her like, just like you have to learn math, you have to learn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's, it's a fundamental aspect of self-defense. You have to learn this. So, or grappling. So I was like, you can choose BJJ, you can choose American wrestling, you can choose judo, but you have to choose some kind of fundamental grappling skill. Um, and, and that structure, that push, this is, this is something you have to do. It worked, and now she's really engaged with uh, Jiu-Jitsu. She loves it. She excels at it. As much as possible, I want to create. I want to rely on like removing barriers and creating pull to movement more than push 
because push becomes a potential place of conflict and tyranny between the child and the adult. Um, that's not to say that you shouldn't do it, right? Like children mm -hmm. do need structure. Um, but when when something pulls people in through love, it's better than when they're just pushed into it. Uh, so that's, I guess, that. then the last thing would be, I want to have aspirational targets with for my kids as much as possible. So obviously I try to practice around them so they can see me practicing, see what I do, know that that's available. But not only that, I want them to be in community with other adults who engage with movement and other children who engage with movement so mm -hmm. that they can see something that's more approachable than me. Oh, that dad's just a weird superhero guy. He does that stuff. That's not for me. But if it's like, oh, my, this, this 16 year old girl who I admire, she's also doing it. And my 11 year old is 10 year old is seeing that and saying, okay, I, I want to be like her. That's more powerful. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm trying to help find community for them that creates an aspirational target around movement. And, you know, it's certainly not perfect, right? Like we, we've had our struggles, but we've had, you know, really exceptional results. Um, all of my kids, well, so my older two kids have both done over 10 pull-ups. Um, my nice. oldest, uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, she's the kind of the least athletically driven of us, uh, but she has like a 14 inch standing vertical jump, which, you know, is way outside of the scope for a 10 year old girl um, or nine year old when we tested her. Um, my son uh, is, you know, kind of now approaching super freak levels. He <laughs> just recently tested, I think, a 20-second uh, one-arm lock-off, which I've never seen any other kid do a one-arm lock-off ever. So he can hang from one hand in a full flex chin-up position for 20 seconds. So he's actually, you know, will probably be able to do a one-arm pull-up relatively soon, which... Uh, He's, Goodness. he's going to be nine years old um, in a week. So that's extremely unusual. Um, he just, he's been running track. He's, you know, wins pretty much every race. Uh, he ran a seven, nine 50 and we don't do any, you know, um, we don't do any dedicated track training. You know, he's uh one or podiumed at multiple Ninja Warrior competitions. He's, you know, exceptional at wrestling. And then my youngest daughter, she's five. She's already done five pull-ups. She can do a tuck plunge and L sit. Wow. Um, she all. She actually just. Uh, she she had a clean sweep at our local all comers track meet yesterday for the first time. She's she hasn't won every event um, in a, in a day before, but she won the 50, 50 meter hurdles, hundred, 200 and long jump for her age class. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we do have some genetic gifts as a family. My dad was a collegiate football player. Um, my aunt on my mom's side was invited to train for the Olympics as a swimmer. But I think a lot of it is just this kind of cumulative effect of, a very different environment of exposure to movement from a very early age. And one of the reasons why I see that is because like with my son, you know, he was like maybe the second fastest kid in preschool. And then he's one of the fastest kids when he's five and six. And now he's much faster than other kids his age. And so he's just, his, his sort of growth trajectory within movement is 
is increasingly diverging from the norm for other kids. And I think it's because other kids are actually just not getting the normal level of movement nutrition nutrition that he's getting. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I think about providing movement. And, you know, so basically within our system, we break it down to there are, um, there are kind of four fundamental movement tasks that exist for us, which are how do we move within our own body, right? How well coordinated are we kind of internal awareness? So something like yoga, gymnastic strength work, somatics, um, Pilates, this is all in this internal relationship to the body aspect. Then there's how well do we move the body through uh, space? So locomotion. Parkour, I think, is the most um, the most fundamental expression of this, but gymnastics is also an expression of this. Trek and field is an expression of this. You know, obstacle course racing, ninja warrior, any number of things. And then, um, and then there's how well do you manipulate objects? And then there's you there? Okay, that's yep. weird. My, like, my screen turned off. Um, yeah, so then how well do you manipulate objects? And then last is how well do you move with other people? So both in coordination and competition. So team sport is great because it has locomotive aspects. You know, can you change direction, move through, jump over something? Um, can you manipulate an object? You know, dribble a basketball, throw a, throw a pass in football. Um, and uh, and then, you know, how do you coordinate with teammates and how do you mm -hmm. defeat an opponent? Um, and then also you have things like juggling, things like, you know, playing with sticks and balls and swords, you know, anything like that is kind of within that uh, manipulative aspect. So I want my kids to be exposed to something along all those lines. Kids will naturally engage in lots of locomotor play, lots of rough and tumble play. So we try to make sure that there's lots of opportunities for them right? The air trick in the backyard, the tree in the front yard. But then we also do things like go to a local parkour park or uh, during the winter, we go to the local Ninja Warrior gym once a week. And we choose the open gym rather than classes so the kids have as much autonomy as possible in mm -hmm. choosing the type of movement that they're doing. Martial arts, they have to do martial arts, right? Um, that's, that's a fundamental aspect of education to me. And then I encourage them to do a team sport at least once a year. Uh, and then we just have lots of balls and ropes and swords and uh, weightlifting equipment around that they can pick up and mess with as, as much as they want. And, and that's interesting because, uh, you know, there's a lot that I, I'd like to unpack here with some of the things you said. For one, um, you talked about, you know, hey, there's weights that they can mess around with. Most most parents, I think, would kind of be worried or concerned about, hey, you know, I, I'm not supervising them lifting, you know, any sort of weight, you know, especially at a young, younger age. Um, but also too, a lot of parents also worry about climbing and you talked about how in school, uh, there's a lot of restricted, um, you know, practices or activities that kids can't do anymore, such as tag. Um, cause I, I think you said actually, in, in one of the conversations, uh, you had on another podcast where you said, I think it was Mercer Island school district in your area had, uh, had restricted tag and, and among other things. And so one of the things that, um, I'd like to kind of breach on with you is with movement, you said martial arts is a requirement. And because there's so much lack of, of movement that kids can do where they can't get that strength, they can't get that coordination. They can't develop themselves. I mean, your kids, I mean, you, you're talking about your three children all excelling 
in movement because you've allowed them and helped cultivate an environment where they can move as part of their, you know, literal education. Mm -hmm. What are you doing uh, because they're becoming more confident, they're becoming stronger, they're independent or becoming more independently minded every single day? What, uh, you know, what are you doing as far as like training and developing their movement to keep them safe aside from martial arts? Is there anything that you're doing yourself to, you know, make sure that they have that, you know, using that movement to their advantage to cultivate a mindset of, of safety and awareness. And, you know, it comes to other people that are in their environment that could get in their way of their day to day life. Um, we haven't really talked a lot specifically about self-defense ideas and situational awareness. Um, they're very confident in their bodies. You know, they're very capable. We live in a very safe place. Um, mm. But, you know, actually the biggest thing that I worry about is water. I worry about them drowning um and so the primary self-defense uh thing is just getting them really competent at swimming so i spent a lot of the time and attention into like okay getting them to have high competence in swimming um and then you know yeah i have a, a little bit different perspective on self-defense right i think that a lot of times people get really focused on the idea of you know a bad guy might uh, catch you in a dark alley and try to take something from you um, I think that so, for me, self-defense is like, don't text and drive. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> I was talking to Rory Miller, who's a great self-defense author. You may be aware he's got a mm -hmm. book called Meditations on Violence. It's fantastic. We're talking about this idea that you go to a, um, like a, you know, really intense self-defense, um, seminar. And you'll know, see all these guys dressed in camo fatigues and talking about violence and all this stuff. And they've got pot bellies and they walk outside and smoke cigarettes. And so the mm -hmm. likelihood that they're going to die of cancer from the cigarettes or heart disease from the food that they eat is immensely higher than the likelihood that they're actually going to, you know, get in a violent confrontation. Unless they choose to behave in ways that expose them to violent confrontations because they want to test their training. Um so, you know, I, I'm trying to teach my kids about what healthy eating is and how to have good relationships with people and how to manage conflict and have, be articulate and have, be good self-advocates. Um, to me, that's all fundamental to their, their awareness of self-defense. Um, yeah, stuff like, you know, was with my girls in particular, well, you know, really both sexes actually like having really strong sexual ethics and understanding the risks inherent in beginning to start a, a sex life. Um, it's, it's a huge aspect of self-defense. I mean, so much violence is mm -hmm. actually around drunk young people trying to negotiate and figure out who's going to have sex with who and if, they're actually willing, right? So, sure. you know, the vast majority of murder is men murdering other men between the ages of 15 and 25. The largest reason that they kill each other is over romantic rivalries. Mm -hmm. um, most of the violence that women encounter is from men who are trying to either get access to them sexually or control access to them sexually mm -hmm. and 
I think it's like 80% of murders happen when people are under the influence of alcohol. Mm. So like a huge part of, of teaching your kids self-defense to me is teach your kids not to binge drink <laughs> and not to, uh, not to start sexual relationships when they're drunk at parties. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I, I think that, I think there's a lot, uh, a lot there. And we actually started going into an area that, um, uh, in self-defense discussion here that uh, I thought we'd get to later, but we might as well tackle it now. And that's, and that's, there's more to it than just a bad guy. Like you said, mm -hmm. um, you know, like one of the things that I find interesting is, you know, self-defense to me, though, I talk mainly about, you know, protection, kicking, punching, you know, the physical, uh, transactions that happen when, you have someone on the op in the opposition who's trying to do something to you, take something from you. Uh, like you said, you know, the, the don't text and drive, I mean, is, is a great example of, of self-defense. You're being preventative. Uh, another one for me is like the idea of how are you internally to yourself? How do you, you know, cause if you are not, um, if you are not able to control yourself, control your, personal choices, whether that be your addictions, your finances, whatever it is, if you aren't striving to, to mitigate those, then those things control you. And therefore you get into situations that are out of your control that can make you do things that you normally wouldn't do or be in situations that you normally wouldn't be in. So like definitely, even though it's more abstract, it's more than just a physical transaction. It's, it's what are the other things that you can do to keep yourself safe? And I mean, for instance, in law enforcement, which um, I, I'm a, I'm a law enforcement deputy in the area that I live. Uh, one of the things that I was taught early, early on was there's three things that can get a cop in trouble more than anything else. And that is going to be money, booze, and girls. I mean, or, you know, in this case was what I was told, like spouses, relationships, whatever. Those are the three things that'll get you in trouble in the job faster than anything else. And it seems like that seems to be the universal case for a lot of people. Most videos that I review and watch and study for visualization purposes uh, when it comes to self-defense is people at nightclubs, bars, mm -hmm. after hours, you know, once they get done partying. Um, and like you said, alcohol is a big factor. So I think that it, it's very wise that, you know, it, it's more, you're, it's more than just, Hey, kicking and punching. It's, it's, Hey, how do I prepare my kids with these, social transactions because really self-defense from the lens of what most gurus do it can only happen through a social transaction so yeah i mean if you're by yourself and nobody else is around you're not having to practice self-defense the way that most of society perceives self-defense and so i think i think that's an excellent point so with that where where do you uh you know what are the main things that you really focus on teaching people like, you know, so for the listener right now, they're saying, okay, we've talked about all sorts of things, relationship with movement. We've talked about some of the ways that, um, your kids have gone from, you know, starting off at one stage to being, you know, like you said, in the super freak levels and in, in some regards, mm -hmm. what can I do for myself? What are some activities I can do for myself or for my kids to develop movement, to increase my confidence, coordination, competence, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, um, the, 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 the place that I actually start with everybody is you need to start walking. Um, again, like, uh, from a broad self-defense perspective, the number one 
the number one killer in America is heart disease. Mm -hmm. uh, walking is one of the best defenses you have against heart disease. It's like, it's the biggest missing movement nutrient. It also takes you into relationship with the world. As you walk around a city, you begin to be aware of what is afforded to you in the environment. What are potentially areas that you don't want to go? Um, you develop an intuitive sense of the place that you are. Um, if you walk through nature, you do, uh, develop a awareness of the natural world. Um, I think a good way to fall in love with the world better is just to walk through it, walk through nature. Um, once we kind of move past that, like a really fundamental thing is how competent are you at rising and falling to the ground? Um, if you're looking at older adults, uh, one of the biggest risk factors is going to be a hip fracture from a fall. Yes. So, um, so how well can you fall? Do you, do you practice, do you have practice actually being on the ground ever? How many ways can you access the ground? How many ways can you get up off the ground? So something like Sistema, which I don't love as a actual combative system has a lot of beautiful things in its ground acrobatics program, which are really, really valuable for getting people comfortable with moving on the ground, getting up off the ground, hitting the ground. That's really fundamental. Obviously something like judo, uh, any sort of grappling, which is going to get you falling is good. And then parkour, right? Um, so we start our teaching with like fundamentals of parkour in the natural world, with break falling practices, with ground sitting practices, with walking and with meditative practices. And I think that's a really great prescription for most people to get started in a movement practice. Excellent. So uh, talking about parkour, I know that you and I know more about this than maybe the average Joe, but uh, for someone that's listening, a lot of what you see online for quote unquote parkour is the gainers off of two story, three story buildings and, and, you know, jumping from building to building and, and all the, you know, the, where people have pushed their physical bodies to extreme limits um, and trying to go beyond those limits. And most people might think, oh gosh, I can't do that. Is parkour flipping, tricking type stuff? Or is it, is there something different to the philosophy of parkour that maybe most of society doesn't glean from? Yeah, but unfortunately, you know, and we face this ourselves, like it, it's it's much easier to capture people's attention by doing something really spectacular and in a sense, actually maybe even unnatural for a human body, right? It's not really something that we would have been doing regularly in our evolutionary past to say front flip between two buildings, but um, it is an expression of human capacity. It's, you know, very virtuosic and it's, uh, it's really fun to do. Um, if you're capable of it. But fundamentally, what parkour is, is just locomotion. It's just exploratory locomotion um, or exploratory locomotive play. That's the terminology that comes out of play literature is you have exploratory locomotive play, object-oriented play, rough and tumble play. Parkour is just a kind of formalization of an exploratory locomotive play practice. Now, that just means exploring, running, jumping, climbing, moving on all fours. Most parkour athletes don't do it, but swimming would also be part of that, mm -hmm. um, can also be part of that, balancing. And all of that can be done 
at very low risk, very low heights, and scaled to any level, right? Um, there's a beautiful video from uh, the Parkour Dance Company, I believe, that um, I think it's called Forever Young, but it's about people in their 70s doing parkour. And it shows that, like, you can take someone who has very, you know, regressed locomotor capacities and, you know, mostly is only walking and have them sit down on a bench, spin, and come up on the other side. And that's parkour. And mm -hmm. that is something that your grandmother can do. It's something that your four-year-old can do. You know, any kind of jump, the smallest little hop is developmental and necessary. One of the things that we lose fastest as we age is our, is our explosiveness, our power. And it's very, very valuable to us. If you need to get out of the way of a car quickly, how fast can you produce power on the ground is an incredibly important aspect of it. If you are in a self-defense situation, hitting someone hard, pushing someone off has a lot to do with how much power you can create off the ground. Like I found as a parkour athlete that with minimal sort of practice of martial arts, I sustained a very high level of skill and a very high level of ability to, uh, to interact with good martial artists in a way where I'm still holding my own or even doing better than holding my own because of the athletic advantages that come through my parkour practice. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the ability to produce power quickly, the ability to move in and out of space, the ability to imagine my body in different spaces and move and have uh, kinetic awareness of where I am all translates incredibly well to the martial arts context. And often it creates some problems for people who are only martial artists because they're not, they're just not used to somebody who has the affordances that I have. My ability to move into and out of range for an attack is so much advanced over someone who has my technical level, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, if you look at my footwork, it probably doesn't scream, this guy can cover that distance that fast. But because I just have so much more baseline power and locomotive ability than, you know, is prototypical in a, a martial arts athlete. I continuously surprise the, the people that I spar with. Um, so, so yeah, so if you're, if you, if you're in a fight, if you just need to plow through a crowd of people who are freaking out, you know, because there's an earthquake and you just need to get somewhere. Like to me, these are all aspects of self-defense and being a more competent at locomotion, having more power in your body, having the ability to jump is really, really, it's a, it's really a power. No, that, that's great. So some of the things that, because <clears throat> I've, been, I've been trying to uh, try different aspects as well uh, when it comes to my own personal uh, movement development, because to be quite honest, uh, when I went into the, the military, uh, we did movement, we rocked, we ran, we, mm -hmm. we did stuff like that, but I wasn't doing parkour, I wasn't doing martial arts, I wasn't doing those things uh, at all. Uh, and mainly because I excused myself from them saying, I don't have time for that right now. Mm -hmm. I have all these other things to do. And I had, I have a family. Um, and, uh, so with that, uh, one of the, some of the things I've been trying to do is get back into movement myself and, uh, you know, trying things out like animal flow exercises, uh, trying to do more calisthenics, doing lifting, um, which for those of you that don't know that are listening, animal flow, uh, is actually super, um, 
subtle in how much it'll actually smoke you if you do it right and you do it carefully. It'll 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 mess you up. So if you are interested in checking out that kind of stuff, uh, you know, with Animal Flow, look it up on YouTube. But I'm sure um, Rafe can get into uh, those things as well because of what he does, which we will get into um, at the end. But so with with that, um, I've been trying out these different things myself, and obviously you have to kind of fit it to your schedule, fit it to your uh, what your strengths are versus what your weaknesses are. Everybody's going to be different. What, what are some universal, um, I guess, activities that, uh, aside from walking that people have done or that you've had people do in your classes, in your retreats that seem to give them the most, I guess, aha moment, bang for their buck development where they just go, they get the light bulb and they go, Oh my gosh. But you know, after doing this activity, I realize I can do more with myself. I can, I can actually do more with my body than I expected. I mean, the, the answer is just basically, you know, doing parkour in nature and rough and tumble play. Right. Now the, the rough and tumble play thing is, is the parkour thing is, is relatively easier for us to support right now. We don't have a, a, a rough and tumble play uh, kind of program online. And it's actually like a lot of times people will see our videos and say, okay, just take a jujitsu class. And it's like, maybe, um, but a lot of times it doesn't actually fulfill all of the functionality of what we're doing. And I can talk about more about why that is, but um, that, that, that's very, very empowering to people when they experience it. And it's hard for them to access outside of our, our retreats. But the parkour mm -hmm. is something that, you know, we have online programs that can support. There's actually also many schools of parkour that we are friends with that we can point people to that you might be able to find in your area. And just expanding your capacity to generally uh, engage in locomotor practices is incredibly empowering. Like you're just more capable in the world. You see the world differently. Uh, you can fall in love with the world for how you can access it in these different ways. Um, and something like being able to take a fall is so empowering, right? I'm not mm -hmm. as afraid to fall down. And when you do parkour and you engage with break falling practices, it's, it's incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the big things that, that I think, um, yeah, are important. I, I wanted to mention about animal flow. I know Mike Fitch. He's a great guy. Uh, I've had him on my podcast. I've done I've done some uh, some animal flow facilitated stuff. It's really um, it's very well put together. It feels really good in the body. We do have a, a ground flow component in our stuff as well. So if Thank someone's you. looking for a more holistic approach to it, you'll get ground flow in what we're doing. Um, if you want to dig into and really, if you really enjoy that ground flow practice, uh, animal flow is definitely. Uh, ex exceptionally well developed program with a huge, I mean, there's trainers all over the world and a huge online ecosystem for it. And Mike comes highly recommended. Absolutely. Um, so that's, a. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I guess there's one more thing before I wanted to get into exactly what you do and what you offer for retreats, for classes and stuff like that. And that is, you know, we brought up rough and tumble play quite a bit. And we've talked about a little bit of, a, of the, the stigma about how society and school have been pretty anti rough and tumble play not just for kids, but for adults uh, mm -hmm. as well. It is considered, uh, you know, uncouth or, or inappropriate for people to get physical with each other, mess around with each other. Um, and so with that, 
I mean, what 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 do you what do you challenge with that? I mean, what is exactly rough and tumble play? Is it roughhousing? I mean, so yeah, same what same it, word. Same content. Um, so, uh, roughhousing is a sort of colloquial term for what's termed rough and tumble play in play research. Um, you know, people might call it play fighting. People might call it horseplay. Um, but essentially, many many animals are motivated to engage in some sort of mock combat style of play, which can include also games of chase and tag often. Um, and they they seem to be pretty reflective of different animals' sort of lifestyle needs, right? So cats uh, love to stalk and pounce things and bite them and claw them and kick them with their back legs because that's how cats catch the prey. And dogs do a lot of similar things, but they do a lot more chasing and a lot more sort of jaw sparring because that's more related to how they they catch and kill things. Um, and, you know, horses, on the other hand, do a lot of like kicking their back legs up as part of that and a lot of wrestling with their necks. One of the interesting things is that basically one of the fundamental social problems that animals face, even before they have much of a like complex social life, is that two animals of the same species will want to solve a problem of who gets to have access to a resource, right? Like here's a patch of ground that, you know, has more, uh, more food available. Okay. Uh, and the next patch of ground isn't as good. So who gets that patch of ground and who gets the other patch of ground? Generally animals have evolved a way of, um, of solving these kind of dominance conflicts that doesn't involve their lethal, lethal combative systems. So if you are a venomous snake and you are trying to solve a dispute with another venomous snake um, that's of the same species, you don't bite each other with your venomous fangs. You actually wrestle. They, they pin each other's heads to the ground. If you're a um, uh, two bull moose, right, and you're trying to uh, decide who who's the, the king of the herd there, right? They don't try to ram each other in the side with their horns. They lock horns and then wrestle. Um, if, if, a, if a moose sees a, a, a wolf, it's going to try to pick that wolf up with his horns and toss it and kill it and gore it as badly as possible. But they actually do engage in this non, non-lethal combat system. Um, and in most species, it's some kind of wrestling some kind of showing that you can pin the other animal down. So we look at human beings even, you see that uh, some kind of throw and pin-based wrestling is universal across all cultures, right? Systems of striking-based combatives that are uh, sort of ritualized and for interpersonal uh, disputes are actually much less common. Generally, if you look at sort of like hunter-forger tribes, it's like you wrestle with your friends and you hit your enemies with clubs and spears and bow and arrows and thrown rocks, right? So you have these different these different systems. So rough and tumble play, it, you can imagine that once you have this agonistic combat system, then you could realize that if you play it outside of an actual dominance conflict, then you're going to be better prepared once the dominance conflict comes up. And then you might realize that if two players are playing and one is stronger than the other, if they win all the time, then they're growing and the other player isn't growing. So then the other player can default out of the game and just stop wanting to play. So then 
there's a motivation to actually handicap yourself if you're the stronger player. And we see this throughout uh, the animal kingdom, that stronger players will handicap it. You know, a classic one that you'll see in, in animals is like a, if you've ever seen like a Great Dane or a big Malamute or something um, playing with like a Chihuahua or a Jack Russell Terrier, it will flop on its back and jaw spar on its back with this much smaller animal that it could literally just chomp in one bite, but it wants to engage in play. So um, Yak Pangsep is a neurobiologist. He's found that there's a specific reward circuitry in the brain around rough and tumble play that's highly motivating for juvenile animals. His model was juvenile male rats. Um, and, 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 and it seems to be deeply evolutionarily conserved. And then you see that it's the same pattern, like goanna lizards wrestle, venomous snakes wrestle, rats pin each other on their shoulders. Like that's, that's what we do. So rough and tumble play you can think of as as play that reflects this dominance hierarchy conflict, but then it's become exapted for all these other purposes. It actually teaches us empathy, right? Mm. Because you have to recognize when somebody else is overstressed so that you can handicap yourself such that they'll want to continue playing with you. So Jordan Peterson has a, a paper called Play and the Regulation of Aggression, which shows that the best way to help antisocial children who are mostly boys uh, become more social is to give them access to rough and tumble play because they'll be highly motivated to get access to this kind of play and then they'll learn to regulate their behavior such that they can access it. So if you go to do jujitsu or kickboxing or karate or any kind of free play sparring environment, that accesses aspects of this rough and tumble play. Mm. What can happen is that you won't have the same kind of freedom to manipulate the game and to engage in self-handicapping a lot of times in these formalized sports that children engage in naturally. So you can imagine that we used to have a play culture that kids would create through their drive to play and then the specific social context. So children are always trying to solve how to grow up to be a competent adult in the culture and environment in which they're in. So if you are a... Uh, an embuti kid, like you're a hunter forager from tropical Africa, and you get a, you find a cool stick, you pretend that it's a bow and arrow because you see all the adult men in your area shooting animals with bow and arrows, right? If you grow up watching Rambo movies, you pretend that same stick is a machine gun. Sure. Right. right? So we we do play out some aspects of it, but there's something fundamental, which is that everywhere, kids pick up sticks and pretend they're weapons. Right. Maybe it's a sword, maybe it's a club, maybe it's a bow and arrow, maybe it's a machine gun. Um, and then, you know, we play these, you know, there's different systems of wrestling that are that are common in different places. So maybe you're doing submissions, maybe you're just doing pins, right? Are you allowed to strike? How much are you allowed to strike? Um, but basically people are doing this everywhere. And, and then kids will invent lots of games that are related to this, right? So like some of the games that I play with my kids are things like, this is my couch, right? I'm on the couch. I try to kick them off the couch. They try to pull me off the couch. They try to get on the couch. Uh, a game we play with our students is just, this is my spot. So we'll just like have someone sit down in a spot. The other person tries to push them off. And they, they're a team. So what is distinct about what we do versus a jiu-jitsu school is that we're focused on how the play cultivates the human individual rather than the technical skill. And we're looking at how can we scale games 
rather than just cultivate specific techniques. So rather than going and saying, here's our fundamentals, you need to know how to escape, uh, retain guard, escape guard, pass guard, mount, side mount, north, south, arm bar, triangle choke, omoplata. We're saying, how can we cultivate somebody who has good sensitivity to play, who moves well, who can uh, do what, you know, uh, who can recognize when a and when a play environment is good for everyone who's involved, who can play with multiple people or one person who can play with someone who's much stronger than them or much weaker than them. And how do we scale games that educate people to that? Now, as part of that, because I come from this extensive martial arts background and I have an interest in self-defense, I'm also curious, how can I get more technical skill out of those games? How can I get more self-defense awareness out of those games? So I, you know, I pay attention to people like Rory Miller and Matt Thornton and um, Faraz Sahabi and John Donaher and all those guys so that I can say, hey, I'm choosing to play this game because it's achieving this play result. And also it's teaching something fundamental about the martial arts. Um, so I'll give you an example. One of our teachers uh, had a game where they would uh, you play tag where you're trying to tag someone's shoulder. And mm. I don't love that game from a martial arts perspective because the sh we don't want to be moving our shoulders out of the way in a way that's going to be exposing our face, neck, and center line. So I want the target to be the center line of the body, and I want the shoulders to be a defensive thing. So I can move my, my shoulder into the way to intercept your attempt to tag to get me at the center of my line because my shoulder is actually much more defensive than my center line, right? Like if I'm trying to hurt somebody, I'm not punching them in the shoulder, I'm punching them in the face and the throat, the solar plexus. And a lot of times one of my best lines of defense is to shoulder roll and intercept that with my shoulder. So the game kind of achieves the same thing either way from a pure play perspective, but from a martial arts technical perspective, I'm preparing that athlete to to have better awareness of the type of games that they might want to play if they're going into a Muay Thai context or an MMA context later down the line. But fundamentally, we believe that, that a lot of the awareness that is taught technically in martial arts is actually better developed through play. So what should your stance look like? So if you are a Muay Thai guy, you're going to be taught a Muay Thai stance, which is adaptive for Muay Thai rules, but is not adaptive for MMA rules. If you're a karate guy, you're going to be called a karate stance, which may have completely changed since Gishin Funakashi because it's mostly adaptive for impressing judges in a kata routine, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a wrestler, you're going to adopt a wrestling stance. But if you play a striking game and you play a wrestling game and you play a swordsmanship game and you play a you know, different styles of, of striking games, all of a sudden you realize that stance is adaptive to the circumstance and the type of task that you're trying to do. If you if you have people just try to tap, we play a game called torso tag. So we have people take a, like a, basically imagine you're holding an egg in your fist. So your hand is soft, but now you're just trying to tag the other person gently with your hand on their torso. Mm. People will automatically blade their stance because they recognize right away that they can get to someone faster if they have one shoulder in front of them and that they can move their chest away faster. They're not going to stand there in horse stance to play this game. 
No. Right? So they blade their stance. So already they're recognizing fundamental things about what an effective stance is in martial arts. Right? Play a game where you try to tag someone's knee. You're going to blade your stance. You're going to lower your shoulders. You're going to move back so you can move those legs out of the way quicker. You can get to someone's legs quicker. So all that awareness just fundamentally builds up. So then you start pointing it out and you say, okay, within this context, what's going to be adaptive? Like you can you can figure it out yourself. What kind of athlete are you? Are you predominantly going to go for the takedown? Are you predominantly going to strike, et cetera? That all di dictates what's the optimal stance for you. So rather than giving someone a, pre a prescriptive stance and having them stand in it all the time, we just play games that teach them why stances work in specific contexts. So... Anyways, that's I could rant more. No, that's 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 quite fascinating. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It really does. Uh, the idea, <clears throat> depending on the activity, your stance is going to change. Your position is going to change. You know how how a fencer stands stands versus how a wrestler stands is you know completely different. Uh, how someone does you know like you said yeah. traditional karate versus you know some sort of uh, MMA or point sparring or something. I mean, it's going to all be different. And and that yeah. and that actually makes a lot of sense to use use play. Um, I mean, all, what you're suggesting actually is almost like a Mr. Miyagi type scenario where it's like, Hey, paint the fence, you know, yeah, wax yeah. on, wax off. You're doing certain activities. Those weren't play for him. Ralph Macchio thought it was miserable, but the idea that you're doing certain activities to replicate movement rather than teaching the movement itself, uh, and getting repetition too from it. I think that's, that's quite interesting yeah. using the play aspect. I think that's really cool. So we we're very influenced or my work is kind of, I suppose, um, convergent with the perspective of, of what's called ecological dynamics and motor learning and the constraints-led approach. And then we've been deeply influenced by that. So the constraint-led approach basically tells us that um, the more that we can use the structure of the task and the environment to impact the way that the athlete is learning the motor uh, expression, the more stable that's going to be under pressure and the more adaptive the athlete's going to be. So if we tell somebody this is the, you know, if you like, imagine, imagine having somebody like stand in one place and mock out a basketball shot with no basketball and no hoop, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Versus having them say, hey, try to get the basket in the hoop, right? Okay. You're, you're, you're attuning, there's no information in the environment without the ball or the hoop or another player. But the more that we get those, the, the information within the, the, the training to reflect the context in which we're going to apply, the more that that's, the, the, the training will actually show up in that context. So, so if you tell someone to arc their shot on a, when they're shooting a basketball more, that's harder for their brain to process. That's not really how your brain learns movement information as well. It's a constraint. You're using a verbal constraint. But you use a physical constraint. If you put a barrier in front of them, they have to shoot over. Mm -hmm. It attunes their information better, attunes them to the correct information better. It gives them an opportunity to solve the problem in a variety of different ways, which creates a more, more effective uh, problem solver in the long time. So the way that we think about it is that a lot of our training has been mistaken because it's been about the idea that you have to have specific patterns, right? So you need to know how to shrimp in jujitsu. That's fundamental. Um, I'm not actually interested in people having patterns that look a specific way, particularly. I'm interested in how well athletes solve 
problems. And then I want to introduce problems that make them as adaptive as possible. And then that are representative uh, as much as possible um, of things that they might actually experience. So one tool that we really like is just a ball on a string. So we can use this in a lot of ways, but one thing you can use it for is to build the capacity to, to move evasively. So we can swing that at someone's head, at their shoulders, at their torso, and have them move their head. And now they're learning slipping and rolling and all sorts of mechanical stuff that applies to striking. Now, the problem with the ball and the string is that the perceptual information of the ball and the string is not the same as the perceptual information that you're going to be picking up from someone trying to strike you with their hands, right? So when if you're a good striker, you know that most of the information that's going to tell you where my body's going to go next is actually in my torso, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to be attending to my torso to tell you, okay, that, that shoulder's moving forward. That's the hand that's going to come. He's moving this way. Okay, so I have to slip this way. So if I'm just swinging a ball at you, you're, you don't have that information anymore, right? Sure. Or the information is unrelated. The way that I move my torso isn't that related to the way that I'm going to move it when I'm going to strike you. So we'll still play with the ball. It's great. It's really fun. It's very easy. It's non-threatening and it gets a lot of these movements going. It helps you generate a lot of sort of general movement ability, but then we'll right away pair it with some offense defense, right? And then we can scale that from very playful, right? Like we can be throwing, you know, very exaggerated dance-like movements into someone's space where we're, you know, throwing like, big open sweeping movements by their head and they're still getting this fundamental idea of what it's like to see a human body moving through that space and move out of the way and then we can tighten it and tighten it tighten it so until we're teaching that person who's delivering the strike to have a very tight hook punch and that person's responding to a hook punch with a roll under it right or responding to a jab with a slip off the side um, but we want to start by creating as much breadth of movement capacity as possible and then refine it down no that that makes a lot of sense that's <clears throat> that's a it's a good it's a good system to put together because you're 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 suggesting that you know you you take the play and then you progressively make it more and more uh in some ways i guess serious or, or specific mm -hmm. uh to an activity yeah um, and, and it'd be the same uh i guess for for kids too i mean i remember my dad uh, as when I was a pup, you know, having us do rough and tumble play, he, he wrestled us, he, he, yeah. he sparred with us. He did all sorts of things like that. Uh, to be quite honest, we rarely did, uh, catch. We rarely did fishing. I mean, it was really, he got home from work and then we went right into just wrestling and other stuff. And yeah. then as I got older, it became more sophisticated. It became more specific. Okay. That, you know, mm -hmm. son, try to do this now, or try to do that. Whatever the, the task was when it came to wrestling or sparring, Hey, roll me over or Hey, put me on my back, whatever it was. Um, and so I, I, I definitely resonate with that. I think that that's, uh, that's huge. So Rafe, uh, at this point, before we, before we wrap up, let's, uh, let's talk about what you do, what exactly you offer, what your, you know, why you started it, you know, and, uh, what people can expect when they look you up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, our website's evolvemoveplay.com. Folks can find us there. Uh, we have a very active YouTube channel and Instagram channel, also on Facebook and, um, Twitter, though I'm less active there. Um, we essentially it's evolved from parkour um i i was a parkour teacher i love teaching parkour and i liked 
also being in nature. So I wanted to take people to do parkour with me in nature. And I also had this deep and abiding love for martial arts, which has obviously come out through this conversation. And I wanted to be able to integrate them. So I started integrating them. I encountered the idea of movement culture, met Ido Portal around that time, started playing with some of the object manipulation games, incorporating those, some of the structural, taking care of the body aspects. That was very interesting because I had suffered a bunch of injuries through my parkour practice and I needed to figure out how to take care of my body. So I started looping all these things together. And then we started taking people out to do retreats and we found that um, the impact was much more than just the movement. People were talking about how much they were craving and needing this deep sense of connection to a tribe and to transformative experiences and to getting to know themselves. Um, and so over time, we started thinking that a movement practice for most people is not about being a world champion. It's actually not about being able to defend themselves in a dark alley. It's actually about the sense of meaning that they experience in their life. And that without good movement practices, we're actually denied some of the most fundamental ways that we can access meaning in life. So that's when I became very deeply influenced by Jordan Peterson's work and then John Berveke's work. And so essentially what we've created is what John Rebecca would call an ecology of practices that are oriented towards giving people the greatest ability to fall more in love with their experience of being. And that includes practices that are about this, about the internal relationships of the self, right? So that's structural, but also somatic. What is it like to experience anger inside you? The world, which is being able to do parkour, but it's also wilderness skills. The objects we can manipulate, which is ropes and balls and strings, and again, wilderness skills, um, and other people, which is the rough and tumble play, but then it's also dialoguing and storytelling and music. Um, and then there's even, you know, within that, we also take respect for the transcendent. It's non, it's non denominational, right? It's not like, you know, we expect people to, to come in with a specific religious belief, but we do fundamentally recognize that we exist with a necessity for relationship to the transcendent and mm -hmm. that there are uh, collective intelligences that are above us. And we can describe this in a purely uh, scientific manner. You know, you don't have to make any supernatural metaphysical commitments to recognize that something like Google is actually a power and that it has intelligence that's beyond us, right? And that we necessarily live in relationship to it. So how can we relate to it properly? So we talk about those five fundamental relationships. And we think that getting your, uh, having practices that help you increase the depth and sophistication of those is ultimately the pathway for the most meaningful life. And that's what we try to offer people through our retreats. And um, they've been incredibly successful. People tell us that they're deeply life-changing. So we have a, uh, we have three retreats a year right now. We're hoping to expand to six next year. Um, right now they're all in Washington State, but hopefully going into next year, we'll be opening some in Massachusetts and uh, mm. also in Europe. Um, we also have a variety of two-day workshops available. We just opened one in uh, Los Angeles in October, so people can check that out. And then we have our online courses, which uh, take you through the whole theoretical, philosophical background of what we're trying to achieve, and then start you off on fundamental practices like walking, like sitting on the ground, like being able to move through fundamental ground flow patterns, being able to uh, you know, take care of your body and your joints, and fundamental meditation and then move towards uh, being able to do parkour in nature, um, running, jumping, climbing, vaulting, etc. cetera. Uh, right now, that's what we have on offer, and we are going to be building 
some of the, the object-oriented practices and the rough and tumble practices into online courses as well going forward. So that's how what, what's going on with us. I also have a podcast of my own uh, that people can check out and see my interview with Mike Fitch, for instance. Excellent. So, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's fantastic to hear that you're, you're expanding that. I mean, UK and, and Massachusetts and places like that, that's, that's quite awesome that uh, you're now going from three retreats to six retreats. I mean, uh, I've done, you know, I've done some research on, on, you know, some of the reviews people have said, some of the opinions people had, and it was all very, very positive. Um, and I actually personally will uh, do my best to try to maybe get out to one of those retreats myself just to experience it uh you know maybe in the next uh next year um so with that so evolvemoveplay.com you know mm -hmm. i mean that's where people can find you uh and do you have any personal socials or is that where yeah it's all everything else is just under rafe kelly so the youtube page is rafe kelly the instagram page is rafe kelly the twitter etc um okay. yep all right well rafe uh, is there any other passing thought that uh or final thought you want to give before we wrap this up no well, that's good thank you all right. Excellent. Well, Rafe, thank you so much for being on and, and sharing your insights and, and, you know, your thoughts and wisdom on, on movement. Uh, for those that uh, are, in, you know, excited and interested and maybe have any questions for Rafe, you can reach out to him on those socials and on uh, his website, evolvemoveplay.com. Rafe, thanks for being on brother. Absolutely. All right, guys, that is it for this episode of the Get Real Stuff Defense podcast. If you enjoyed this video, if you are watching, please be sure to hit that like button and subscribe and share with your friends and family. And also, if you are listening, I appreciate you. Please be sure to hit that five-star review and share with your companions and friends as well. And with that being said, guys, Rafe, I mean, I, I've always enjoyed talking with the guy. He's very intelligent. Uh, he knows his stuff. And I really do appreciate that some of the insights and counterpoints he gave when it came to self-defense. I like it when people try to push some of the boundaries and some of the, I guess, echo chambers when it comes to self-defense. And I agree with him. Self-defense is more than just kicking and punching. It's also about being preventative in other ways. And the fact that he covers that, uh, I think, is very solid. Talking about everything from just preparing your children for, you know, when they're going to go interact with other teenagers and parties and, and the romantic interactions that may come with that as well as the fact that you can just be as simple as making sure your kids don't uh, text and drive or that you don't text and drive and that being preventative in a self-defense manner as well I think it is very articulate and it actually makes a lot of sense and I think more people myself included should take that into consideration when it comes to defending yourself so with that being said guys Thank you so much for watching this episode of the Get Real Self-Defense Podcast. If you enjoyed this, uh, if you're watching, please be sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and share with your friends and family. And if you are listening, as usual, please be sure to get hit that five-star review. Give a review on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, whatever it is that you are using as that platform, and share with your friends and family. Again, I really appreciate you guys. Train today. Protect tomorrow. I will catch you guys next time.